anyone who's been a leader of any kind knows that uh, they've probably seen and read a myriad of articles and books on leadership, on how we are to become good leaders, even great leaders. And so I'm just going to read an example of some articles I came upon. Um, and so here it is. Here's, here's 10 qualities of a good leader. A good leader is to be appreciative, confident, compassionate, courageous, diligent, fair, uh, flexible, honest, impartial, and responsive. So, okay, if you're a leader of any kind, you took that in, right? All those great qualities you need to have. Or here's another article that said, here are seven leadership qualities, attributes, and char- characteristics of a good leader. Uh, so these seven things are, according to this person, vision, courage, integrity, humility, strategic planning, focus, cooperation. Again, if you're a leader of any kind, I wonder how those hit you as you think about whether you're living out to those things. All of these articles, whether you agree with them or not, these books, they speak to how we desire to become good leaders or that we desire to have good leaders over us and that we we do expect our leaders to lead well. But it also speaks to the fact that there is a lack of good leaders. I mean, there's a reason why there are so many books and articles that keep coming out about leadership, leadership, leadership. And um, I'm sure you could think of some leader that you think, oh, maybe I should slip them this book and say, hey, maybe you should read this. Don't slip me any books, please. I, I, um, but certainly open to conversations like that. Um, it's interesting, right? Because in today's passage, it, we hear the psalmist speak and pray how he longs for a good king, a good leader over Israel. And he shows that he longs for this good king to bring justice and prosperity. He shows his longing for a good king who will rule far and wide and forever. And pointing to this future king that will come, who will reign um, in a way that fulfills that longing that I think we all have as human beings. A little context for this psalm. This psalm is what we call a royal psalm. And it it would have been a psalm that was used in the coronation of Solomon and even other kings, uh, Israelite kings who succeeded him. And it would have indicated to the people of God that this king is the anointed one of Israel. That this king um, is is a descendant of, of King David and the covenant of God with King David has been passed on to Solomon and to kings who succeeded David and Solomon. But it's what we also call a messianic psalm. It's a messianic psalm in that it points to a future king, a messiah king, who would rule forever in goodness and righteousness for the good of all people. And so as we approach this psalm, it's it's helpful to, to remember these things about this psalm. But let's dive into the text here, and I won't read it all again, but we'll see one of the the main themes in verses 1 through 7 and verses 12 through 14 is this idea that we are all longing for a good king who will bring justice and prosperity. And verses 1 and 2 kind of set up the psalm to show us the direction in which it's going, the direction of this prayer. It says, Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Again, the psalmist is praying 
to God for Israel's king, that God would enable this king to be a king who brings justice and righteousness and prosperity, and and therefore, specifically, even be a king who looks out for the poor. The psalmist asks God to use this king, again, to bring prosperity and flourishing and, and peace two times uh, in this section, the Hebrew word shalom is used for what, the, what this king would bring. And so shalom is this word that indicates this state of complete well-being in the entire cosmos. And that is what the prayer is asking for, for this kind of state of well-being. But we see very clearly, as you heard read earlier, there's this emphasis um, on the, the king to bring, to, to bring justice and righteousness And specifically talking about the king is someone who defends the cause of the poor, who gives deliverance to the children of the needy, who is helping those who have no helper, and is one who is ridding the country of oppression and violence. This king was meant to reflect the nature of God to the people of God, was meant to reflect the heart of God, a heart of compassion, not just to be concerned for the sake of political gain, but to be genuinely concerned for people who may be weak, who may be afflicted, who may be in need, who may be poor. And where again, we see this prayer for God to make the king, this kind of king over the country. This prayer also reminds us though, and this is maybe even in our often secular mindset that we forget about. This prayer to God reminds us that there is a call for this king to rule on behalf of God, to rule in a way that is God-centered, that is dependent upon God, and not just human-centered in a way that's trusting in only the efforts of man, like the surrounding nations around Israel would have done. And at the coronation of Israel's king, every king would have been given a copy of God's law. And to be given a copy of God's law is, to be, is for the king to be ri- reminded he must know God's law and he must rule and act according to God's law. God's law that reveals the goodness of God, that reveals the heart of God and the design of God for all humankind. Now it's interesting, I think we all do this in some way, but whenever we read scripture, we tend to read our favorite things into it. So I can imagine with this passage that there are those who are happy to read liberation theology into this and focus only on the the oppressed being released. And in great contrast, there can be those who read into it sort of this prosperity gospel of God being the God who brings wealth and flourishing and prosperity. And it's interesting because I think God's standard always calls us to something so much much more holistic, so much more broad, so much deeper. And we understand when we talk about God's holiness, God's set-apartness, it means that God's justice is so much greater than secular justice. That God's prosperity is so much greater than material wealth or conspicuous wealth or creaturely comforts. And so... Both the Christian social justice warrior and the Christian prosperity gospel preacher have got something partly right about the promise of God. But at the same time, many times they have gotten hugely wrong the timing of how God would fulfill those promises. And so we find in this broken world, the best kings, the best leaders, the best pastors, the best elders can only faintly 
point to the perfectly holy goodness, righteousness, justice of God, the King of Kings, who is still at work to fulfill the promises given in this psalm. Now, meanwhile, our human longings still continue as we live in this world. We all want a good leader over us. We might be shaking our fist at our leaders, but even as we shake our fist, what we're saying is we long for a good leader. It could be your student org leadership. It could be your campus ministry or leadership that you're like, oh, I wish we had a good leader. It could be your academic department's leadership. It could be the PTO of your school that you long for good leadership. It could be your local leaders. It could be your national leaders. We all want good leaders. We want leaders who lead for the sake of others with competence, not leaders who serve for the sake of their ego and or... Um, in, in, in incompetence. And this royal psalm, again, makes us easily think, most naturally, of the highest office in our country. Now, there are those who dislike President Trump who are probably watching the Democratic um, national candidates with great interest, wondering which are the few presidential candidates who might compete with Trump in 2020 elections. We see their longing for a good king. I was just in Canada yesterday for my cousin's funeral. I don't really ever know what's going on in Canada, but I find out from my cousins that actually they're about to have their prime minister elections in October. So they are in the thick of presidential and uh, prime minister election season. And again, things I didn't know, but apparently prime minister Justin Trudeau is, is very vulnerable right now because he was revealed to... Uh, probably abuse his power in trying to maintain his political base in Quebec, and that was kind of revealed by one of his ministers to have done that. He doesn't really have a strong uh, competitor from the conservative party, but he's vulnerable because of these corruption allegations. And we see, well, I saw at least these Canadians longing for a good leader. And in my, my hometown, our top political position, the chief executive of Hong Kong, Carrie Lam, is facing daily calls for resignation. And she seems, I don't really know what she does with her time, but she seems to be doing literally nothing other than an occasional press conference, even though there's been daily protests for two months straight. There's clashes between police and radical protesters. The Hong Kong people are longing for a good leader. But it really doesn't matter whether it's U.S., Canada, Hong Kong, or anywhere in the world. We all long for good leaders for our country. A leader who will bring justice, righteousness, prosperity. A leader who serves the people, who lifts up the most vulnerable amongst us, who defeats those who will bring ill to our society, those who are strong enough to rule benevolently despite other powers who want to tear them down. We need to know and recognize and acknowledge our longing for good leaders is good. Our longing for good leaders is good. And we should pray for our leaders. Just as this psalmist prayed for Israel's king. And we, we pray for the best. We pray risking disappointment. We still hold our leaders accountable, but we pray knowing that we are all 
imperfect, sinful, flawed human beings. We pray knowing that we alike, like our leaders, need forgiveness and grace. Maybe they need it so much more than we do with the responsibility that they're given. Does your longing for good leaders lead you to pray for your leaders? Or do you just shake your fist at them? Pray to God for your leaders. Pray for your president no matter what you think of him. Pray for our Congress. Pray for your local leaders. Pray for your elders in this church and their families. Pray for me and my family. I covet your prayers. I recognize the elders and I as leaders of this church, we are under spiritual attack in a way that is special. I don't really want to be special in that way, but I think that is just a spiritual reality. We need your prayers. Prayer, I see these memes a lot. Prayer with no action is no good, right? We can't just keep saying let's pray about stuff and not do anything. We still have to do stuff. Whatever that thing is where we want to bring change to, we still have to do stuff. But we pray because just as this prayer, we pray as those who are dependent upon God and for God to work through our efforts. We don't pray. We betray. We're merely acting in a human-centered kind of way, trusting only human efforts to make things happen. So we must pray for our leaders as this psalm teaches us. But we go look in the next section, which there's this theme in verses 8 through 11 and verses 15 through 17, this, this longing for a good king who rules far and wide forever. When the psalmist says in verse 8, may he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth, it's really just an ancient way of saying that the, the king will rule far and wide over the whole world from east to west, from north to south. He's saying, may he rule from the Persian Gulf in the, we, in the west, I'm sorry, in the east to the Mediterranean Sea in the west, from the, the, the river Euphrates in the north to the ends of the world that they thought of as being in the south. This was their concept of the world and the psalmist is longing for the king to rule again over all. And in verse 9, the psalmist uses a different description to pray for this complete rule of the good king over all the nations. He's saying from the nearby nations and the desert tribes to the faraway nations of the distant shores in Tarshish and Sheba, which is modern-day Yemen, and Seba, which was an African nation, and these specific references here in this psalm was indicating the, the state of peace under uh, the reign of Solomon, under King Solomon, and the, the international diplomacy that was going on between those nations. It was at the height of Israel's influence. And he's praying for there to be a good king who rules over again all. Praying for the king to bring even greater peace, greater prosperity, greater justice and flourishing to all the nations. Again, expressing this desire for a good king to rule far and wide forever. Now, it's interesting to listen to this with our ears today. The language may sound like the language of colonialism, 
the language of invading and oppressing foreign countries to pillage their land of all their resources and to impose upon them a particular definition of flourishing and peace. And sadly, historically, we have to acknowledge that people have done that in the name of Christ, even, to have conquered and colonized countries in the name of Jesus. And so we are, when we read something like this, left with a cultural question for today and in our faith, do we still long for a good king who rules far and wide? Or do we just ask for a king to rule over our particular community, but not anyone else? Now I have to say, you know, you may disagree with me, but modern day pluralism as we see it today in our culture and is encouraged today is very difficult to live by. If we are really supposedly to live out, you do you, live your truth, then that should mean that our attitude towards other countries should also be that way. But we see it's hard enough for us to do in our own country with our diversity and pluralism. How much harder it would be to have that attitude of you do you, live out your truth with other countries that have cultures that are so dramatically different than ours. The reality, though, is we have a hard time accepting other people's truth. We'll say out of one mouth, yes, you do you, while out of the other mouth we'll judge their view as being less than ours. When we think of just accepting someone else's truth when it comes to countries, I think we have an even harder time. When we think about countries that don't even allow women to get an education or drive, do we just say, yeah, you do you. It's got nothing to do with me. When we look at countries that still imprison and kill LGBT community, do we just say, well, you do you. It's fine. We're further ahead than you, but just keep doing what you're doing. Do we just say, hey, let's just let other countries discriminate against their ethnic minorities and say, yeah, you do you. We can't, right? In our hearts, we can't. We were just like, I can't accept that we just say it's okay for other countries to do this. So, yes, on one hand, we recognize the abuses of colonialism, but we also acknowledge that we can't just say, you do you, to other people and to other countries with no regard for what might be going on. And I think this acknowledgement of that tension says we long for a leader who rules far and wide. We're not just okay with everyone doing their own thing, living out their own truth. When we acknowledge that, though, at the same time, our hope becomes, I hope this good king agrees with my definition of goodness and righteousness. Scripture, though, calls us to submit to the leadership of a good king who brings justice and prosperity far and wide. And I think it's just throughout Scripture, and we have to wrestle with it, no matter what our modern-day mindset may be. But in Scripture, it certainly points us to something specific. And I'm sure you know the answer. But specifically, even verses 18 and 19 more specifically point us to this, away from just you know it being something that applied to David and Solomon in their time. Verse 18 says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. 
May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. We're pointed to even more clearly this picture of God reigning in justice, bringing prosperity to all over all the earth. And we know the answer as Christians that King Jesus is the one who fulfills that longing and that our praise is due to him. These last verses point to the forever nature of what God is doing through the messianic king, that is Jesus. Here's the thing, because of this longing for a good king that we have to rule with justice and prosperity, this, this longing of someone who will rule far and wide forever, we have this longing and we can't deny it. And yet at the same time, we are impatient people. We want this kingdom to come now, right now. And we will put all manner of effort into making it happen even for our own countries. But we are always tempted to put too much trust in our own efforts, in our own earthly political leaders' efforts. It could be our country's top leaders. It could be our local leaders. It could be our church leaders. It could even be our parents, right? The authorities in our family. Mark Vitado, in his commentary of Psalms, says this, This prayer, the prayer in this psalm, paints a glorious picture of what the ideal king would look like. But even Solomon, in all his glory, fell far short of the ideal. This psalm would have been read in the post-exilic community as a prayer for the coming of the anointed king, the Messiah. The psalm drove the people to look into the future when the justice and righteousness of God will be embodied in a human king. But only a king who was fully divine as well as fully human would live up to that ideal. I don't know. I don't, maybe because of what is going on in my hometown, I think about all the different political systems and governing philosophies out there and I ask, are any of them really working? Are any of them really working? I know we prefer some over others and we see it kind of working in one place but not so much in another, but are really any of them working? Should all countries just replicate Scandinavian countries? Should we all become like Bhutan who apparently is trying to push the, the, the gross national happiness instead of the GDP? As great as any of those countries may be, it's not easily replicable we think on a human level. Every country has its own circumstances. If we want to become Norway, it's not that easy. We're not Norway. If we want to become Bhutan, we can't. They just, we're so much more developed, just even structurally. You can't just say, oh, let's just go back in time and knock down stuff. You can't just become something else. Every country has its own particular people and problems and the vision of Norway or Bhutan in reality pales in comparison to the vision of this prayer in this psalm. The vision of what God is saying he wants to do in this world, in his creation. And in the end, God calls us to a much greater vision of justice, righteousness, prosperity than any of these comparisons in earthly countries. And he says, it is only the king who is fully divine and fully human, Jesus Christ, 
King Jesus is the one who can accomplish this vision. A vision where we see the fullness of that. No political system can defeat the power of death. No political system can defeat the power of sin. In that sense, political systems are only dealing with the symptoms. No political leaders can remake this world free of sin and suffering and sorrow and death. President Trump is no Jesus Christ. President Obama is no Jesus Christ. King Jesus is the ideal king that scripture points us to, to put our longing into. Because the justice and prosperity and flourishing that King Jesus seeks to provide far, far, far outweighs the justice and flourishing that we can imagine in this world. And he did this by dying on the cross for our sins. He did this by raising from the dead to defeat the power of sin and death. And we know he is the good king because he was willing to die for us and our wrongs. And we know he is king forever because he has already defeated the most powerful thing, death itself. Some of you heard last week, my cousin died last week at 31. And I got home from his funeral in Toronto at 1 a.m. last night. It didn't feel real yesterday. Yesterday didn't feel real. I mean, it was just like 24 hours, go to Toronto and come back. It doesn't feel real. And like most everyone else, in a few weeks, I will try to go back to living like death is not a reality. Try to ignore death for another day. But I know my aunt and my uncle can probably never go back to that kind of thinking. When someone that close to you passes, you can't ever live like death is not a reality. No parent should outlive their child. It's just not the way it's supposed to be. And I was reminded this weekend that death is an intrusion in this world. That death is an intrusion on God's design for His creation. It is not a part of what He meant to happen. And no one hates death more than God Himself. And that's why John Owen's theological masterpiece is so brilliantly titled. It's called The Death of Death and the Death of Christ. No one hates death more than God himself. He was willing to die to defeat the power of death and sin for us. God's design and purpose for this world, his vision of justice and flourishing is one where death does not exist, where sorrow does not exist, where sin does not exist in our hearts or anyone else's, and that he wants to fill this world with those who live out the justice and compassion of his heart, who live it out for his glory and his name, not for our own, and to live in the blessedness of oneness with him, trusting that it is in him, as this psalm says, that all blessings come. And so, as a church, we strive 
to continue to try in our flawed way to reflect the heart of God in this city by caring for the most vulnerable, by living out the gospel tangibly for those in need. But at the same time, we have to unabashedly proclaim the gospel in word to proclaim the hope that comes through faith in Jesus Christ because we cannot fall to the temptation that the vision that God wants is just to make this world a little bit better and a little bit more bearable. We will, as we sung earlier, do all we can in this world to bring about a goodness that reflects who God is. But at the same time, we know it requires the work of God to remake this world. And it is our faith in Him that enables us to be a part of that hope, to be a part of that people, to have that eternal hope. So we must live it out, but we must share it in words too that people might not just have physical flourishing, but spiritual flourishing through the gospel of Jesus Christ. I hope as we move from this rec center to 500 North Clinton Street that we continue to be a church who holds these things in tension, to be a church who lives out the gospel in word and in deed and not fall prey to saying, oh, it's just about in word or it's just about in deed. It must be both if we are to have hope of seeing the vision fulfilled of what God has given, a world of justice and prosperity, physically and spiritually in oneness with God. Jesus is the good king who will bring justice and prosperity far and wide forever. So let's proclaim this gospel and live out loving justice. Let's pray.